Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. And deep satisfaction out. <sighs> Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary. Today on The Charlie Kirk Show, I speak with my good friend Dave Rubin, whose new book, Don't Burn This Book, is out. You guys should get your copy today. Email us your questions, freedom at charliekirk.com, freedom at charliekirk.com. Comments on the show go straight to me and then to our team. And of course, type in Charlie Kirk Show to your podcast provider and hit that subscribe button. Charlie Kirk Show, hit that subscribe button. You guys are going to love this conversation. A lot of fun. We cover a ton of topics. Here we go. Charlie, what you've done is incredible here. Maybe Charlie Kirk is on the college campus. I want you to know we are lucky to have Charlie Kirk. Charlie Kirk's running the White House, folks. I want to thank Charlie. He's an incredible guy. His spirit, his love of this country. He's done an amazing job building one of the most powerful youth organizations ever created, Turning Point USA. We will not embrace the ideas that have destroyed countries, destroyed lives, and we are going to fight for freedom on campuses across the country. That's why we are here. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this edition of The Charlie Kirk Show. I am thrilled to uh, have a friend of mine, a fighter of liberty and freedom and American exceptionalism, someone who I have toured college campuses with from University of California, Berkeley, to many other fun hotspots across the country. And he has been such a friend to Turning Point USA and to The Charlie Kirk Show. And he has a new book out. I'm going to plug the book right now. We're going to talk about it. Don't Burn This Book by the one, the only Dave Rubin. Dave, how you doing? Welcome to The Charlie Kirk Show. Charlie, you have become a professional, my man. That was... That sounded like a 30-year radio career intro right there. Oh, that's very kind. So I've been, uh, I guess I've had lots of time to practice during this nationwide I, shutdown. So I'm pleased you that- You have, you have. Pleased it is true though what you said. It's true what you said there. We have, we have toured a lot together. We've done a lot of gigs. We've had a lot of people say mean things to us together. And yet we've survived. We've managed, you know, people have called us racists and bigots. And yet we have survived and persevered. And here we are. Yeah, it's amazing how it all kind of came together. And I'm so interested in your book for a variety of reasons, because it feels as if when I go to college campuses and when you do too, we're up against the modern day book burners. And so first, Dave, tell us about your title. I get it completely. But for the audience, I says, what do you mean? Don't burn this book. What are you talking about? Tell us about your title. What is the thesis of the book and why you wrote it? Yeah, well, it's interesting. And I mentioned this right at the top of the book that when I got the book deal, uh, we were negotiating it while I was on tour with Jordan Peterson. And we were in Dublin in Ireland when we had the big discussion with all the agents and, and Penguin Random House and everybody, all the book people about what we were going to do. And they wanted me to write a book called Why I Left the Left. And that's a phrase that has been sort of attached to me because I did a PragerU video about four years ago called Why I Left the Left. And the funny thing about that is that in the video itself, which has been seen something like 20 million times, I actually never said I left Phenomenal the left. Video. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, it's a great video. And, and I was really, obviously I was glad it caught fire and all that. But in the video itself, I actually had never said, Oh, I left the left. It was never a phrase that, that comes out of my mouth in the video. And the morning that the video got released, and, and you know this on how Prager operates, you know, because of animation, you tape that, you know, a few months before and then they animate it and release it. So I had taped it, uh, maybe in October or something. And then the video came out in February. I didn't know when it was coming out, but I got a notification on my phone as I'm laying in bed and I look at it and it says why I left the left. And I kind of freaked out because I was like, no, I, I haven't left the left. I've been trying to, you know, fix the left. I've been trying to say, hey, lefties, we're not liberal anymore. We, we don't care about free speech. We're trying to destroy everybody all the time. You know, what happened to open-mindedness and a defense of good liberal principles? So I was really pissed. But about an hour later, I saw the video catching fire. And then suddenly I saw all of these people who were like, holy cow, I hear what Ruben's saying. Like, I'm, I'm a liberal, but, but progressives have just ransacked the whole party, basically, and, and there's very little left here. So I was supposed to write a book called Why I Left the Left. And as a matter of fact, on the, the contract that I signed, the book title is Why I Left the Left. And I was writing it for about three mm. weeks. 
And what I realized as I was writing it, I was kind of like, you know, I'm writing about a lot of stuff that I'm against, but I'm not writing about stuff that I'm for. And, you know, people have heard me say the why I left the left stuff. They've heard me say the phrase regressive left, you know, a million times, which I'm proud to say I only put in the book once. And <laughs> I started realizing I want to, I want to write something that, that is a stand for what I'm for, not just a, uh, a marker about what I'm against. So I went back to them and I said, guys, you know, I, I don't want to do the why I left the left. I want to change the arc of the book. And, and fortunately, everybody, I got very little pushback. They were happy to let me do what I wanted to do. And then there was one other title before it ended up being Don't Burn This Book. There was a day I was in New York City. I was meeting with the Penguin people, the publishers, and I was getting like a ton of like hit pieces written about me that week. It was just like one of those weeks. You've, you've gone through, you know, versions of that yourself. And I was just getting all these hippies and I was really pissed. I was just like, you know, cause sometimes it does get to you. Sometimes it doesn't. And I walk into the office and they were like, all right, Dave, well, we're not going to do why I left the left. What do you want the new title to be? And I said, guys, what about this? What about the memoir of a right wing lunatic? Because my idea was, I'm not, <laughs> because my idea was everyone calls anyone on the right, a right wing lunatic, right? Well, if I'm laying out some pretty common sense principles in this book, it would actually be kind of funny. People will write that I'm a right-wing lunatic, but then in fact, you see very basic, I would say pretty centrist stuff in here. And then the the head of Penguin was like, well, if we're going to do that, why don't we even up it even more? And we actually, at one time, I had agreed to call it the crazed rantings of a right-wing lunatic. And uh, that lasted for about 24 hours. And then the idea of don't burn this book, which... We had thought originally that it was gonna, we were gonna put a little banner around the book, like a little paper banner that you'd have to rip to open the book called Don't Burn This Book. And, and in essence, the idea, of course, behind this is that I'm laying out some very, I would say, foundational American principles. And we can argue about the specifics of every little public policy that I lay out, but the basic ideas of individual rights, of a constitutional republic, of a defense mm-hmm. of free speech, and all of the things that I know you deeply care about, Charlie. And yet I know a certain amount of people will want to burn this book um, because unfortunately common sense has become rather uncommon in the times that we live in. Yeah. So that was the that was the genesis of it. And I look forward to a social justice warrior burning it and hopefully they send it to me on Twitter so I can retweet it. Well, and I, I want to compliment you, Dave, because you, you offered me a platform early on and that was very generous to you and it helped me tremendously. And also, you and I first, I think we really first connected uh, at an undisclosed location in Palm Beach. We'll put it that way, just so that, you know, that they don't... <laughs> Is it, it, it will remain undisclosed, them. okay. That's right, undisclosed. And uh, it's, it, it may or may not be Mar-a-Lago, we'll see. And uh, no, I'm kidding, of course. But um, I first connected with you there a couple years ago. And during that kind of connection, I complimented your work from your own telling of the story is uh, really kind of fun, but that's also where I hired Candace Owens. And uh, you as a former leftist and a classical liberal, I think that's fair to label you as a classical liberal. And I want to dive into that because I think a lot of people listening to this uh, deserve kind of your explanation of it because it's phenomenal. And we hired Candace Owens there. And over the years, I've realized that, Dave, you have offered a very important platform, long form interview style uh, for lots of people, almost going off of the tradition of Larry King. It kind of also feels like Charlie Rose style, where people can really dive deep into the ideas and the issues and the topics. And people have helped. I mean, you helped catapult certain careers and Candace Owens would be one of them. And so, Dave, why don't we just pick up right there? Can you tell us the difference between a liberal and a leftist? I talk about this a lot on The Charlie Kirk Show. I have my own definitions of that. And tell us why you would still consider yourself a classical liberal, important you know, pr- uh, prefix there, but you would not consider yourself a leftist. Yeah. Well, real quick, let's just, uh, just back up to what you said there a moment. I know we've told the story once or twice publicly, but we met at this event in Palm Springs. Uh, you said, oh, Dave, I'm a big fan of the show. And, and you said, I'd love to have you come speak. And I immediately knew, you know, this was just when I was starting to talk to, say, the scary right-wingers a little bit more. And I knew yeah, we had me. some disagreements. But immediately, immediately, you had a big smile on your face. You shook my hand. You said, yeah, let's let's do something. And and we ended up now in, in the last, whatever it is, three years, 
we've done dozens of, of speaking gigs together and I've done many more for Turning Point without you. And nobody tells me what to say. I say whatever I want. And sometimes the students agree with me. Sometimes they don't. And, and it's all good. Uh, but yes, at that very moment, you also met Candace Owens for the first time. And, and, and if mm-hmm. I wasn't there to see it for myself, I actually wouldn't believe that it was true. But you had about a 10-minute conversation. We were standing outside. I remember exactly where we were standing. You had a 10-minute conversation with her. I was about 15 feet away. And she walked right up to me and she said, I just got a job with Charlie Kirk in Turning Point USA. And it's worth repeating because I think some people in life just sort of have a gut feel for what's real, what's what's interesting, mm-hmm. what's good, what's new. And if I hadn't seen that that thing all happened within 10 minutes and it was only a minute earlier that you had just said to me, yeah, let's work together too, um, I don't think I would believe that story, but it is true. But to get to your question about the difference between a conservative and a classical liberal, what I would say is this, that a classical liberal you basically have to believe in two things. You have to believe in individual rights, and that's that's the most important part, meaning that individual rights, everyone that is part of our country legally should have the exact same rights, and that's regardless of gender or skin color or sexuality or religion or any of those immutable characteristics. You have equal rights for everybody. Now, what that doesn't mean, obviously, is that some people are going to be born more. Some people are going to be born into wealthy families. Some people are going to be born poor. Some people are going to be born with great physical attributes. Some people are going to be born without them. Some people are going to be more lucky in life, right? Like, that's just a thing. Some people are going to work harder. Some people are going to be lazy. All of that stuff is what I would call the gestalt of life. That's a good Yiddish word for you. It's just the, the, the mix of life that you get left with. But a society can't guarantee you all of those things, great physical attributes and to be born into money and, and the dedication to hard work. What a society can do, and I think it's the only thing that a true good society can do, is make sure that everyone has an equal playing field in terms of the rights that they are granted, right? And that's what we have, by the way, in the United States. And we, we didn't always have it, right? We have, we have consistently moved that arc of justice towards more justice, and I mean justice in the true sense, not in the social justice sense, for more people than than anywhere else in the world. For example, we had slaves, then we freed the slaves, then black people could vote, women could vote. We've always extended freedoms to more people, and now there are no laws that stop anyone from doing anything based on their immutable characteristics. That is a beautiful and in many ways uniquely American thing. I would say the one other piece that you need for, for a, a classical liberal lens on the world is you need laissez-faire economics, meaning that you want as much competition as possible, you want free markets, but you understand that at some level, and in many ways it's just an unfortunate reality, you need the government to put some basic guardrails in place to make sure that the states aren't warring with each other and that there are some what I would say are minimal rules in place. That, believe it or not, is the classical liberal position. Now, I'm sure many of your listeners are going, well, wait a minute, that sounds nothing like the liberal position. That sounds very much like conservatism. And I would say at this point, as it stands in 2020, there is only a very, very thin line delineating between a classical liberal and a conservative. So you consider yourself a conservative. I say I'm a classical liberal. I would say you and I have a couple policy things that we disagree on more, which I go Mm -hmm. into... I go into some of them in the book. I mean, my chapter on abortion, I literally, the last line is, now that you all hate me, let's move on. So it's not like I'm pulling punches from the conservative side. <laughs> but those minor disagreements, and even if they're on major issues, like I know that the abortion one is is like the issue for people on the right. Like in many ways, that's yes. the third rail for people on the right. But what I have found is that conservatives, whether I'm talking to you or Glenn Beck or Ben Shapiro or Dan Crenshaw, who I just spoke to, or any of these people... There is an openness to discuss these things because I think you guys share that individual rights thing. You guys share a sort of underpinning of your beliefs, a foundation, let's say, of your beliefs that the Constitution is good, that we have God-given rights. The government didn't give me freedom. It can take my freedom away unjustly, but it didn't give it to me. That's like a pretty good starting point. So I don't mind if, if anything, my defending my liberal principles is now a conservative position. So I would say, you know, as I'm doing a lot of press for the book, at this point, if I had to give like a so if I had to make up a phrase, let's say, to now describe what I am, I would say I'm, I'm a liberal conservative, meaning I'm a conservative in, in most regards, but I would say I, I maybe have a little bit 
perhaps of a more wide tent than the, the usual conservative would have. Um, but I'm not even sure that that distinction is important anymore. But I would say that liberal and left have nothing to do with each other anymore. Yes. The progressives. Yeah, that's very important. Uh, yeah, the yeah. progress. You've explained this well many times, and Prager and a lot of our friends talk about this. But that progressives are collectivists, right? They believe that you should judge based on these immutable characteristics. They believe that instead of individual rights, you should have certain special rights depending on your privilege or lack thereof, or I shouldn't say privilege, your perceived privilege, because the only real privilege from an American perspective is that you're American. It's pretty freaking spectacular. And then they want to put you in a pecking order of who can say what, who we should be able to take from and give to and all of those things. That has nothing to do with true liberalism. And and I'll just say one other thing on this. The simplest way to explain it would be that John F. Kennedy was a liberal. John F. Kennedy's most famous quote, ask not what the country can do for you, ask what you can do for for your country. Now try to imagine Bernie Sanders saying that. That's actually the 180 polar opposite of everything Bernie Sanders says. Bernie Sanders says the government will give and give and give and give. And he says it over and over. That has nothing to do with JFK liberalism. So I think partly the reason that, you know, I have allies like you and I've, and people care about what I think is that five years ago or so, I just started saying that there's something wrong with the left. This is not the liberalism that I know. And what was sort of a fringe thought five years ago is now a very mainstream thought now. I mean, I think a lot of people really see it now. With all the uncertainty in the world, feeling safe at home has never been more important. It's why I want to talk to you about Simply Safe Home Security. They're long friends of our show, The Charlie Kirk Show, and for good reason. All the property I care about uses Simply Safe. Right now, predators and criminals are on the loose. They're breaking into homes, doing things that would not make you comfortable, and quite honestly, will put your family at risk and in jeopardy. That's why you need Simply Safe. Simply Safe has made it easy to finally get comprehensive protection for your home. If you're listening to this right now and you don't have home security, guess what? Crime is up and they're breaking into homes and businesses. There's no excuse not to get Simply Safe. It's simplysafe.com slash Charlie. You get a 60 day money back guarantee. It's so easy to set up. There's no technician or salesperson that needs to come and disrupt your house. It's affordable and you don't need to pay an outrageous monthly fee or a sign up a two year contract. You just order online. You set it up in under an hour and the predators and the criminals will be stopped and your home is protected 24 seven with emergency dispatch for break and fire and more all for just 50 cents a day. Stop the criminals. Be safe. That's simplysafe.com slash Charlie. Simplysafe.com slash Charlie. I have so many questions and it just drags my kind of thoughts on so many things. The first thing I, I want to zero in on, which you and I have discussed both on camera and off camera, but I'm just super curious because I saw a YouTube video of yours recently that talks about this. You say we have God-given rights. Um, I believe that there is a God and I know in the past, some people have labeled you as an atheist. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if that is true or not. Have you moved at all on the issue of faith and a belief in a higher power or God uh, in this process so, and in this journey of yours? Yeah. So as you know, I, I do write about this in the book. And it's interesting because I had never said that I was an atheist per se. And then about, about four years ago, I had had a string of atheists on the show in a row, guys who I happen to really like and admire, who I think are very decent moral people. And many of their books are right next to me here from Sam Harris and Michael Shermer and Steven Pinker and Jonathan Haidt and Peter Bogosian. And I had had a bunch of them on in a row. And I really like the general, at the micro level, meaning the individual level, I, I love a lot of these guys that, that talk about free thought and, um, and that can build a sort of moral code, uh, outside of traditional religion and all of that. And then there was one episode of my show where I sort of just blurted out something about being an atheist. It wasn't even really something that I believed per se. It just sort of like kind of stumbled. You know what it's like to talk for a living. Like Mm -hmm. sometimes you say something and you're like, oh, did I exactly mean it that way? Or what did exactly did I say? Anyway, I just sort of let it there. And then there was a very active atheist community online. And they kind of jumped on it, like, "Oh, we we have another ally." And by the way, I spoke <laughs> at the reason I spoke at the reason rally in D.C., you know, at, at the National Mall there. And I and one of the things that I was doing 
from a lefty perspective was saying to them, guys, we have to be better on free speech and all of these things. So now let's flash forward a couple of years. Uh, as you know, I do these Augusts off the grid where I do no phone, yeah, no television. I was going to ask you about that. So. I, well, I, I'm awesome. trying to get more people to join me. I, I may have you, uh, I may have to publicly challenge you to join me, but no news, no nothing, no televisions, which by the way, it becomes incredibly hard to do because everywhere you go, uh, as I always say, if there's a muted television, CNN is on it. You know, you go to the gym, CNN muted. You go to a pizza joint, CNN muted, but you still see headlines. Yep. So I would go to the gym and I'd have to have a, a cap and I'd have to keep my head down like this and do cardio like this. But anyway, I, when I first did it three years ago, so this will be my fourth summer doing it in August, when I had time to think and to read and to be away from the machines and the, and the endless noise of Twitter and all of that stuff, it really started striking me that I didn't like that people were using that label with me, that I do believe, I fundamentally believe in something outside of myself. And, you know, so I'm, I'm Jewish. And I think one of the things that the more evangelical side of Christians, who I happen to love evangelical Christians as a, as a whole, as you know, I spoke at Liberty University in front of 14,000 sure. evangelicals who couldn't have been more welcoming or decent or fun. Um, I love people from all walks of life. I judge people at an individual level. Um, but I'm just telling you, I, you know, I speak to a lot of evangelicals now and I, and I go to speak at a lot of churches and I find these people generally, these believers to be quite, quite lovely actually. But there is a difference between say, sort of like a traditional Jewish belief and a, and a, and a Christian belief. And I would make one exception, which is that I'm not, when I say Jewish, I'm not talking about sort of ultra-Orthodox, the, the literal believers who dress a certain way and, you know, apply, apply every uh, Talmudic law to their life. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking more about what, what we all think of sort of cultural Jews. So like the Seinfeldization, let's say, of Judaism, right? That Judaism is about a culture. It's about a sense of humor. It's about a sort of outsider's way of looking at the world. It's about acknowledging like a pretty brutal quite brutal uh, history, a horrific history in many ways, but that have allowed a people to still survive despite anything. You know, most most cultures that have gone through or had gone through what the Jews have gone through would be long gone, but somehow Jews are still here. It's a pretty, it's a pretty miraculous thing in a sense. Um, I would say the difference between belief from a Jewish perspective than a Christian perspective is I do find when I'm with my evangelical friends that they'll often say to me, well, do you believe you have a personal relationship with God? And that's not the tradition that my parents, grandparents, ancestors before them had. There is, there is a belief. I mean, any holiday, I, I celebrate Passover and Yom Kippur and these holidays with my family, and I, I go to temple when I can and the rest of it, and I have a newfound um, appreciation for it. But I think that that, that little thing right there is, is sort of the difference between, say, a, a more Christian belief and a Jewish belief where the, the Jewish sense of God, I think, is a little more amorphous, where the Christian sense is a little more personal. I don't mind either sense. And I don't think that one, I don't think that one is necessarily better than the other. I think it's just from a long tradition of people that came before you. You, you happen to be born Christian. I happen to be born Jewish. So I don't think it really matters, but I, I do believe this to, to really answer your question. I do believe in God given rights, meaning that something before us, Charlie, before man, gave us freedom because the because the government did not give me freedom the united states government did not give me freedom it can take my freedom away but it did not make me free it is your birthright as a human being mm. to live free and the second we say oh government no 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 government made you free well then you're giving government a freaking incredible leash to do whatever it wants with your freedom and we have actually right now with corona we're in a particularly weird spot relative to our freedom yeah. and some of our constitutional rights right like in effect whether you think it's right or wrong or whatever you think about coronavirus, our Fourth Amendment is suspended right now. You can't assemble. You know, we can do it over video, but we, we can't go to the coffee shop with three people. So yeah. these are things that these are things that morph and change with time that sometimes don't seem very important and sometimes do. Um, but fundamentally, and I talk about this in the chapter where I talk about uh, how Jordan Peterson affected me. I believe that for a society to organize properly, it's not that any of those people who I just mentioned as, as well-known atheists, it's not that they are not good and moral and can bring decency and science and free thought to the world. But I don't think a society that is godless in that sense, that doesn't acknowledge the history of the past, that doesn't 
believe in effect in, in biblical truths? Why do we believe that David can beat Goliath? Why am I always fighting YouTube? Well, maybe Dave can beat Google. <laughs> uh, there, there, there are things outside of us that for me to just say, oh no, I'm so evolved, I'm so beyond everything, it would be like the height of hubris. And I, and I refuse to just erase everyone that came before me. So I hope that well, kind of Dave, answered your question. I listen to a lot of your stuff and I watch a lot of your videos and I, I think you do a phenomenal job. I've actually discovered so many awesome people. I discovered human progress actually from you. And so I love I'm them, Marion Tupi. Yeah, oh, they're phenomenal. It's the only good news out there sometimes. It's so, so refreshing. And actually Lila Rose, I think had one of her best interviews with you and I really kind of came to appreciate her. Uh, and I, so I watch a lot of your stuff and I just think you're, your summary right there that you've just given on uh, religion, I have, I've never heard. And I, I was really moved by that. So thank you. And I Thanks. think you should talk about it more, quite honestly, because I think people still label you as an atheist, Dave. And that's just, uh, it's not correct based on what you just said. Uh, so I, I hope that, you know, this serves as a platform for that. I think rights do come from something that is greater than us. And I, I make the argument quite often that if we don't recognize that there is a rights giver, then government will take that place. And that's where I think the atheists uh, have a really tough argument when they're trying to convince people of natural rights. Whereas, you, yes, you might have people like Sam Harris that really can say disciplined and say government shouldn't do this, this, and this, and you should be able to speak. But the, the majority of the people in the godless community are going to use that as a license to make government God. And evidence well, shows that time and time again. And that's more like well, a utilitarian by the way, Charlie, argument. I'm completely okay with the utilitarian argument, actually. I don't think you have to be a believer in a traditional sense to, to see the utilitarian purposes of believing something outside of yourself so you can organize society. I would think that that's actually more of a Jordan Peterson take on this thing. I actually think that that's okay. Now, I know from a Christian perspective, mm -hmm. and, I, and I wouldn't want to get too lost in this, but from a cr Christian perspective, there's a general belief that you, they want you to have a personal relationship with Jesus. No, so that's, that's exactly not right. Yeah. Right. So that's Correct. not utilitarian. It's experiential and it's rebirth exact. And that's what I believe. I, I, I could make the utilitarian argument that Christianity will make society better, uh, but that's not why I believe in Christianity, right? That's just a nice piece of evidence to argue for a Christian worldview. You said it beautifully right there, because what you're saying is I as an individual have a belief system and a belief in God, and yet I don't, what you're really in essence saying is I don't want to impose that on everybody else, and I can even that's understand right. the, I can even understand the people who only believe for the purposes of building the same society that I want to build. And that's actually, I mean, this is the type of thing that mainstream can never touch because, you know, they do everything in five second or five minute video clips. And it's like, these are such foundationally important beliefs and, and we skirt them all the time. And, and I just will say one other thing on this, which is that, you know, until I wrote this book and until now where I'm doing a ton of press on it, and, you know, when we do all these interviews now, just like with you, like you didn't tell me what you were going to ask me. I didn't know where we were going to go with this. All I don't those know hours that was... of prep, Dave? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> well, I didn't know. Sorry. But, but the truth is, I didn't know if I was fully ready to talk about all these things until suddenly in the last week where now I've done, I, I mean, I've done hundreds probably of interviews. And it's like people are starting to ask me more and more things that are pushing the limits of what I've really been talking about. And I think I'm actually getting better at explaining it. So I totally appreciate you asking no, that, me that. That, that, that was and, very nuanced, and it was it was great. And I, I see more clearly how you view uh, God and religion. And anyone who labels you as an atheist uh, would not be be fair to your thought behind it. Coronavirus fears, canceling worship services, the U.S. Constitution, and COVID nineteen depression and social distancing, how to keep yourself and the kids happy through quarantine. Listen to A Christian Response to Coronavirus on the Issues Etc. podcast. Just go to issuesetc.org COVID or look for Issues Etc. in your favorite podcast app. A Christian Response to Coronavirus, issuesetc.org COVID, Issues Etc. I want to read something from the book that I find to be really fun. It's on page 142, and everyone's got to buy the book so that they can read it themselves. It's, and I, I, I quote, Just imagine if Frodo from Lord of the Rings spent all his time demanding help from the nanny state rather than completing his mission in the fires of Mount Doom. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. And then it finally, you sum up this argument by saying, an independence is pivotal to being a classical liberal. So, Dave, I want to transition it to current events. 
being a classical liberal and basically having the state tell you everything you can and cannot do right now under the guise of safety, how are you processing that, Dave? Is that the spirit of Frodo from Lord of the Rings, of that individual spirit with what you say is pivotal to being independent? Um, or it, do you think that we're sacrificing too much liberty at this point? It's interesting, Charlie, because you know I'm a Star Wars guy and you skipped some Star <laughs> Wars references in there. I believe I also make an analogy to Luke decided to blow up the Death Star instead of letting someone else do it. And I think I also yes. made a, uh, a never-ending story metaphor that's a little bit more of an you obscure did. one for I, the ch- children of the 80s. I skipped over that because... Yeah, I skipped over that. I've read the book. It's so monotonous. It's so <laughs> long. It truly is the never-ending story. It, it is It is a long oh, book. <laughs> but the message of the never-ending story, that it's human imagination that sort of makes the world go, is, is a brilliant thing. But let's sure. put that aside. Um, to get to your question, am I worried right this moment? So look, uh, you know what the writing, you just wrote a book yourself, and you know what the, the process of writing a book is like. Uh, the, the publication process is quite slow, actually. So I finished this book in July of 2019, uh, which is now about, what, eight months ago. And then we edited it in the fall, and I finished it right sure. before Thanksgiving. So in effect, I haven't touched this book since Thanksgiving. One of the things that I'm, I'm most happy about right now is that so many of the principles that I lay out here about limited government and particularly about states' rights are exactly the conversation that everyone is having right now. Like, I know you and I can do a wonky conversation about states' rights, and if I go to speak to conservatives or libertarians, especially libertarians, they love to talk about states' rights. But like, in terms of culture and what mainstream is talking about and the rest of it, you never hear anyone talk about states' rights. And if some libertarian- Yeah, if, and if some libertarian actually manages to get on CNN, it's like they say something about states' rights and they seem kind of nerdy and you're like, ah, forget that or, guy. Or, or they'll only talk about states' rights in the prism of like 1960s George Wallace who wanted to secede and use states' rights for the worst possible reasons. That's the only way exactly. they use it, right? Exactly. They'll only give you the worst version of states' rights instead of what the best version is, which is what our founders uh, – plotted and what the, what the Federalist Papers are about, that all of the states were supposed to figure out their own stuff for the most part. And the federal government had to maintain the borders of the whole thing and make sure the states weren't warring. But in effect, the, the federal government wasn't supposed to do much more. And we were going to be this affiliate group that would all come together. And as Dennis Prager always puts, is is a sort of living, breathing experiment of democracy so that One state can say high taxes, one state can say low taxes, one state can say legalize recreational marijuana, one state can say keep it illegal. And then you constantly are tinkering to figure out what the best thing is. So one of the reasons I'm so, uh, one of the reasons despite coronavirus that I'm, that I'm happy right now is that I talk about this a lot in the book, and suddenly now it's a mainstream thing to talk about states' rights because we have to decide who's going to reopen the country because the country will reopen and someone's got to do it. And, you know, there's a bizarre position for the lefties right now because the lefties who have been calling Trump Hitler and his his supporters racist and the rest of this nonsense, well, they're the same ones who seemingly want Trump to, he should have closed things earlier, so you wanted to give him authoritarian power even earlier, the guy who you think is Hitler, and now he should have all the power to reopen everything. I mean, it's a, it's a little yeah, exactly. bizarre inconsistency, but, but the way it should work, and I think the way it is going to work, and actually this is something Trump's been quite good at, he's been telling the governors, you guys pretty much have to decide what's right in your state. And, and the thing is, we all know that's true. It doesn't mean that the federal government doesn't have to do anything. It doesn't mean that the federal government doesn't have to give any assistance to states that need it more. But it is obvious to anyone with a couple flicking cells still in their brain that there is a difference between reopening New York, especially the metropolitan area where there's so many millions of people living on top of each other and subways and apartment buildings and in, in quite literally in Queens, in Corona Queens has, has one of the highest, uh, rates of coronavirus. That is very different on what you're going to have to do than if you live in Montana. So obviously the governors and the mayors and the state legislatures should all have some more to do with their own people than everything else. And unfortunately what's happened, we've done a weird thing that I think has gotten worse in a time of Trump, although I don't blame Trump for it, is we all sort of think that the president's the king. Like we forget that we have three branches of government and that the gov- the president isn't supposed to write laws. He's not supposed to decide whether they're legal. He's just supposed to sign them. And then the judicial branch makes sure they're legal. And it was the legislative branch that was supposed to bring them to him in the first place. But we live in this odd time where we forget the whole reason of America is that we left a king. 
We left a king, but now we live in this time where the cult of personality, I suppose, around the president is so large that we sort of, even when they, people that hate the president, they kind of want him to do everything. And I think that's a pretty dangerous spot to be in. So I'm very worried that, you know, who knows how long this goes on. And I, look, I live in California, so I'm not living in the most friendly state for my ideas, right? Yeah. And I've got a lot of, I've got a whole welcome wagon of people in Texas that are begging me to come over there. Um, but, but, Zero you know, percent income tax, Dave. No, Zero percent income tax. I know. Florida and Texas are looking pretty good these days. But um, I am worried that, you know, the longer this goes on, we will just sort of, we'll whittle away at what our freedoms are. We won't kind of remember them because think about it this way, Charlie. We've been doing this for what, six, seven weeks now, and it feels yeah. like a long time ago that you could go to a bar and have a drink with your friend or meet somebody for coffee. And I don't want to forget what that old world is. I, I'm hopeful for the new world, and I think new ideas are on the way. Um, but we shouldn't erase everything that was in the past. Well, yeah, and new ideas are not always good ideas, and we have to recognize that not all progress is good. In fact, restoration yep. actually is something that can be beautiful and warranted. So in Chapter 4, Dave, I want to press you a little bit here. I want yeah, to make sure I understand away. what you're saying here. I will Good. have some on water chapter... so that I'm ready. Excellent. Uh, so on Chapter 4, you say, don't worry, you're not a Nazi. Uh, you continue by saying, congratulations, I find fantastic news, you're not a Nazi. So I'll stop there. You go on in the chapter to build out, basically, if you're reading this book and you're even somewhat open-minded, there's no way you could possibly be of that viewpoint, right? Because this is a classical liberal, I'm guessing you're not a socialist, that's what the argument you make. However, Dave, you're pretty pointed here. What, what if someone who is actually hateful and is, you know, I would just say rooted in some very wicked ideology, and there are not many of them at all, but they are out there, and some of them I have had to put in their place, and we won't say any names on this podcast. Yeah. But so, yeah. Dave, what, what do you have to say with that, or is this more just kind of talking a little bit less broadly and more specific to the type of person that would be reading this book? It's a good question, Charlie Kirk, because we did debate the topic. I talked about it a lot with uh, the, the chapter title, I should say. I debated a lot with my editor. So first off, I'm being slightly tongue in cheek because obviously most I figured of the people, as such. Yes. right. So, but, but you are, but underneath what you're saying is actually a really good point because although I'm being slightly tongue in cheek because we know the amount of people that are labeled Nazis every given day, including you and me. And I, I grew up ridiculous. around, yes. yeah, I, I, yeah. I grew up with Holocaust survivors in my family. I mean, the idea that I'm a Nazi or something like this is so patently absurd on face value, it, it's not even worth acknowledging. But I, I wanted to do it, the title with a little bit of a joke because I think that gives a little bit of room for people to start being okay with this nonsense. And part of what the mob is trying to do all the time is use these words so you'll be afraid of your own shadow. So I sort of wanted people to embrace it in a, in a bizarre sense. Not embrace being a Nazi, but embrace the sort of stupidity of it. So to your question though, could an actual Nazi or, or let's say a true racist bigot or someone that does not want equal rights for black people or some series of other really crazy things, could that person pick up this book? And then I've said to them, they're not a Nazi. Well, the answer to that question is, of course that is possible. But I think what would happen is if they are a thinking person. They will read this book and they will find so many ideas on quite literally every page that are counter to the ideas of collectivism, which is what Nazism is. I mean, Nazism, the idea of, you know, in, in the traditional sense of Nazism that, you know, there was this white Aryan race that was better than everybody else and we're going to have to purge all of the deplorables, let's say, from a society, you will find no cover for any idea remotely close to that in this book. As a matter of fact, you will find endless page after page. Yeah, vast of the, repudiation. Of the, yeah, uh, right, exactly. uh, right. So, so yes, could it happen that a Nazi is going to hear about the chapter and be like, whoa, a book was written for me? Well, I hope that happens because I hope a Nazi buys the book and then goes, you know, this, this ain't bad. And maybe I have to rethink some of this stuff. Um, but yes, so that is why it was a little tongue in cheek. Well, and, and, and let's see if yeah, maybe no, we I, can reform some I, Nazis. Well, I can see where you're coming from from there. And it's important to note that they're the farthest thing from conservatives or liberty lovers or classical liberals like yourself. They are, by definition, collectivists, uh, yes. collective identity, collective ownership of property, no individual initiative, no tolerance, no individual – no, not individual responsibility, instead responsibility to the state. So you articulate that quite well. 
With no NBA, NHL, or Major League Baseball action going on, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be totally wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on, from their online casino to poker and blackjack as they are bringing Vegas to you. Vegas might be shut down, but Bet Online is not. If you guys are missing the NFL, well, Bet Online has daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can wager on. If you're into entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol stock prices, and even Nathan's hot dog eating contest. All open 24 hours hours all day all online visit the website or use your mobile device and join today to receive your new welcome bonus bet online your online wagering solution visit betonline.ag don't forget that promo code podcast one bet online your online sports book experts so i want to go back to something you said dave and i've talked to you, to you privately about this and i you cover it in the book and i can't find it maybe you could direct our listeners everyone yep. please pick up this book i'm enjoying flipping through this and just chatting with dave about it because it's provocative, but it's not for the sake of being provocative. And that's what I like. That's the best type of literature is that way. So Dave didn't just write in all caps just to try to, you know, get people to talk about it. Instead, he did a lot of thoughtful reflection here. I want to talk about the part on abortion. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, we'll, we'll dive right into it. Because, um, Dave, I saw your interview with Ben Shapiro a couple of years ago where Ben made some, I think, very, very good points. And you've admitted in interviews since that Ben really made you think about this topic and this issue. As you said, this is a fundamental uh, on on the right. This is probably the issue that is the litmus yeah. test. Right. And it's, I think, for good reason. And so you said early in the interview, and I totally agree with this, that people like Glenn Beck and people like Dennis Prager and Ben Shapiro and myself, who are all outspokenly uh, pro-life, do so because of our love of natural rights, not because we're, we want to restrict anyone else's natural rights. And right, fact, not because you hate are, women. Right, exactly. So we're not pro-life because we desire to try to restrict anyone's freedom or liberty. It's the opposite. We actually are pro-life because we view that as a life and we want to protect that uh, being's freedom and liberty. Can you talk at all about how you view the abortion debate and topic? Have you moved at all on the issue? I'd be so interested in that because you've had some very articulate pro-life guests that you've given a significant platform to. Yeah. So first off, um, I just want to say that, yeah, I've, I've had this conversation with a lot of people that you've mentioned, Lila Rose in particular, and I actually just did her podcast as well. And we talked about this. We basically focused on that chapter for, for almost an hour. Uh, I should just be clear, though, if you, if you buy the book, you'll see that the abortion section is just a section of a chapter. And it's only about five pages, but I lay out what I think are the best classical liberal principles on this. So first, I want to I make need a to couple find cons- it on the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know what page it is off the off the top of my head, but but I do end the chapter by saying, now that you all hate me, let's move on. So let me address everything that you said there right up top. So first off, I do not deny that a sperm meeting an egg is the genesis of life. If if life is to begin at some point, then that is the point that it must begin. Now we can have a debate over when it's a blastocyst a few days later and then when it attaches to the uterine wall and all of those things. But I think you need to just, the, the only thing that we could actually say is the beginning of this whole thing, e- even if it's a clump of cells, that is what I would say the beginning of life is. And you know, the left always says that the right hates uh, science or denies science, but it's like if they found a speck of anything on the moon, they would say it's life. And for some reason, this is not life to them. So it, the accusations of who, who believes in science is a little bizarre. Um, I will say one other thing broadly before I get into the specifics, which is I find that this abortion one is the issue that, that I think is keeping a lot of closeted liberals, and, I mean, and again, here I mean liberal in the good sense, um, from fully embracing conservatism. I think many of them have been convinced by libertarian economics. I think many of them have been convinced by individual rights. Um, many of, have realized that the welfare state doesn't work. But I think for them, for some reason, and I, and I sort of understand the reason, it's partly my own reasoning, uh, that this, the absolute pro-life position is just a bridge too far. So my position is this. When I, when I sat down with Shapiro about this about probably three or four years ago, I was taking the 20-week position. I was not denying that it was life. And Shapiro said to me, you know, Dave, if you're saying it's 20-week is the cutoff, you are acknowledging that it's a life at 19. And I said, yes, to have an honest conversation with you, I am. But my preference is still to maximize the the individual liberty of the woman who is here and now at that moment. But I, I am full-on 
granting you that this is a life, that this is, I always describe myself as begrudgingly pro-choice. I think this is a, a, a horrific choice that anyone would, would make. Uh, but what I talk about in the book, and I've, I've since moved my position where I, I think 12 weeks, first trimester, should be the cutoff point. And, and by the way, that's considered a deeply, deeply radical position by the left because now they're okay with, for the most part, eight-month abortions, and they, they'll even have conversations about post-birth abortions. I mean, that's just a twisted fact. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I believe is that for those first few weeks that we have to give maximum liberty for the for the woman, ho- hopefully with the man, but for the woman specifically, to do what she thinks is right. I am not denying that it is a life. I am not. Um, and what I would prefer to see is that if you found out that you were pregnant and you didn't want the baby, that you would go to term and then leave it up for adoption, or you would get help from your church or your temple or whatever it might be or whatever group there is. See, here's the thing. And I think conservatives sort of struggle with this. I know that you, Charlie, don't want to live in a religious theocracy. But at the same time, we live in a country that has people of all sorts of traditions, backgrounds, feelings, philosophies, and the rest of it. And I think we this is one of the ones where it's a mix between, it's a, it's a deeply uncomfortable mix between letting people live freely and doing what they want with their body and also having the government have to get involved at some point because it's also a life and what is one of the few things that the government's supposed to do? It's supposed to protect life, right? So look, I have a couple exceptions beyond the 12-week rule, which mostly include, you know, some really, uh, really brutal diseases and, you know, developmental things, if only a partial brain and if a, a child can't live a fully actualized life or if there's health for the mother. But I think what you can hear me saying beneath all of this is this is not something I relish in in any way. Um, I would prefer to figure out other ways for this not to be. Um, but I will say one other thing on this, which I said to Lila a couple times, which is the unfortunate truth that I think conservatives don't want to grapple with, at least publicly, is that if Charlie you, if your sister or your mother or your girlfriend were raped, let's say, and, and impregnated, as unlikely as that may be, or some other horrific circumstance, a lot of pro-life conservatives would do what they had to do and they just wouldn't say it. And, and I'm not even, ju- I'm actually genuinely not even judging you for that because I think what the conservative position is on this is sort of reaching for the star of what the best of the best should be. But that's not always what policy can be based on. And believe it or not, I had a conversation with Dan Crenshaw about this and he and he sort of agreed with me on that, that he has a position, a pro-life position, but that, you know, an absolutely pro-life position, but that may not exactly be what he can get society to do, especially at a time when the, the left has gone so off the deep end with abortion. So I hope I hope that cleans so it up, for, but I'm happy I'm happy to answer anything else specifically. Sure. So first I want to commend you in your book you criticize people that celebrate their abortions, which I think is a very important step. Um, and I think it is just gross and awful, anyone that would celebrate uh, that practice. And I, you, you say here, um, you don't talk about it kindly. I, I would go further, obviously, than you would. But you, you do criticize people that do that, and you would make the argument that it should be private, and this is not something that should be celebrated or should be advertised. Uh, to your point about um, the hypocrisy, I fully admit that human beings can be incredibly hypocritical. I don't think that's a good argument as to whether or not we should have impartial laws to defend individuals who can't defend themselves, because every single law uh, or every single practice that someone might espouse very well could be violated. For example, we have we have laws that say that judges and police officers shouldn't abuse their power, but of course they do. Uh, so that's not exactly the hypocrisy is within every sort of moral code that we have. But that's not but, an well, excuse just, just to, to be not clear. I'm not. I'm, you're completely right. I'm not saying policy should be based in oh somebody's going to be a hypocrite. I'm just saying that at the end of the day, at the end of the political conversation, there's just another reality that exists. But I agree with you that you can't legislate off denying someone hypocrisy or something like that. So I I suppose I have one question on this. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I'm fascinated by it, Dave, because you're a free thinker and a classical liberal, and I've seen you be very open-minded on this issue, and I I think that uh, there's questions I have. So do you think that at times, though, because you are very focused on protecting the liberty of the mother and the woman, as you say, in the early weeks— do you think it is ever okay 
to restrict liberty to try to protect a life? So this is a great question, and I and I loosely touch on this in in this chapter. And again, you know, one of the things that I do in this in this chapter of the book is I say, look, I'm going to lay out all these principles, but just so you know, it's about five pages on economics, five pages on abortion, five pages on on big level stuff. You know, there are books and books and books written about all of these things, so I can only touch on so much. Um, I, look, ultimately, what your question comes down to is. When should the liberty of the child supersede the the individual choice of the mother? That is the ultimate essence of the abortion debate, if we're having an honest or abortion debate. Um, and I think it's a totally fair question. And what I would say, and this is what I lay out in the book, that I believe it is an uncomfortable truth and a deeply personal choice that we just have to allow that woman to do. And what I would love to see conservatives do on this, by the way, is maybe do more outreach to young women that suddenly get pregnant and don't know what to do and don't know where to turn I, so that I they don't... I fundamentally agree with that. And yeah, I so criticize they, conservatives they, for being way too much focused on restricting abortion, which I agree with, and not, a mu- not enough on compassion and benevolence, generosity, and forgiveness. Right. And I did a whole podcast Absolutely. on that. So you're spot on yeah. completely. Oh, I, I love hearing... I'd love to hear the podcast. I mean, that's a beautiful thing because imagine if... So if your priority is that you want to protect the life of that child... Um, and it's two weeks in, it's, it's just a fetus, you want to protect that life. Well, imagine if there was, instead of always railing against Planned Parenthood, which is perfectly fine, actually, I think, and I don't think we should be publicly funding Planned Parenthood, that's a separate issue, but imagine if conservatives really made a movement to say, we are going to figure out a way to raise funds so that any girl that finds out she is pregnant she doesn't even have to think about it for a second. She may have a, a, a moral quandary with her parents or you know some of that kind of stuff, but that she would know that her bills are taken care of, that this child, if she chooses to keep it, we're going to give her a leg up and some path to something decent, uh, or we're going to help her let that child be adopted or the rest of it. I think that... If conservatives did more in that regard, I actually think it would help the liberal the liberal position on this. And I've spoken to churches. I actually spoke in uh, Calvary Chapel, Thousand Oaks. I've spoke there. Great, great group of people. It it comforts me that you spoke there, Dave, because they get a bad rap as being like backwards thinking and all this, and it's so untrue. And Rob McCoy's amazing, and so is Jack Hibbs. And here you are, Dave, as a you know openly gay married you know Jewish guy who speaks at an evangelical church. It kind of dispels everything the left says. But I I get I told I said to the church and I spoke to them and they agreed. I said, look, we as conservatives, we should of course be advocating the public policy realm. We do a lot of that. Uh, but right now there are three thousand women every day that go through the choice of having an abortion because of shame and embarrassment. And nine months of being pregnant as a teenager is really, really tough and rough. And if there is a surgery, you know, there's a procedure where they think it can go away in two hours and that shame and embarrassment and that responsibility disappears, they're told that that's a great option. And so considering how, you know, how well-resourced and financed the Christian conservative movement is, I completely agree that it's unacceptable that that kind of safety net does not exist. So you'll find commonality and agreement. And there are good groups that do way, it, but they, it's not enough. It's not enough. Yeah, and 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 as conservatives, you'd be doing something that is deeply consistent with what I know you, Charlie, your other beliefs are, which is you're you're not just demanding the government just pay. You know, we're not just saying let's raise taxes five percent on everybody so we can ensure that every baby will be taken care of. You're saying let's us, the community and individuals do what we think is the right thing and put our money where our mouths are and see if we sure. can do it. And and I think that's the healthiest thing a society can do. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's both, of course. I believe in the public policy and also the individual and I and I'll, we'll we'll close this 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 topic on this note where I get frustrated when people only argue for the government to do it. I say, no, you have to have it in harmony of your own personal action and the public policy, or else you're nothing more than just a pro-life statist, and that's not that's not what it should be. You got to be pro-life in your own personal giving and your own personal time. There are great pregnancy crisis centers out there uh, that nurture women and they give them financial assistance. They're just they're so strapped for cash, Dave. I've dealt with them. I try to financially support them when I can, and they're they're wonder you know they're understaffed and under resourced, and they feel a little bit you know, shorted for good reason because Planned Parenthood gets all this money. So, so Dave, in the couple minutes we have remaining, I love that discussion yeah. and we can have it at, you know, more at a, at a different, at a, 
you know, anytime, date and, anytime. And I, I love how we're able to talk about it without, you know, raising our, the volume, the decibel level. Uh, what else about the book do, did we not talk about that you'd like to cover? And again, I encourage everyone to check it out. Dave has been great to us at the Charlie Kirk show. He has been on twice, uh, and I've been on his show a couple times and, uh, he spoke at Turning Point. And so, Dave, what did we not talk about? Some of the big themes that you kind of want to touch on in the few minutes we have remaining. Yeah. I mean, look, there's, there's a whole chapter on, on finding a mentor and I lay out what my year and a half long tour and 120 stops in 20 some odd countries was like with Jordan Peterson and to watch his rise and the way he affected other people and how that almost through osmosis affected me and helped me, helped me actually elucidate some of the things that we've talked about here about belief and, and some of the other things. But I would say some of the, the other key things to, that people will get out of the book and perhaps the most important one is I really want to give people the tools to stand up to the mob. Because Charlie, you know this so well. When we go to these college campuses and we do a Q&A, and every single time I've done a Q&A with you, we always say, if you disagree with us, you come up first, right? Always. And one From of the Louisiana things that, State one of the, University to UC Berkeley. Always. Yes. We've, we've yes. always done it at, at every event that I've ever done with you and all the ones that I do privately as well. But what I find is that students especially, but I now think this is happening everywhere, it, uh, across society and across ages, is that people basically are politically closeted. This is this is sort of how I begin the book. People are politically closeted because, you know, people think of the closet, when you say someone's closeted, they think they mean just specifically about sexuality. But I don't think it's just that. I think there's a new pernicious closet out there, which is this idea that if you don't have the woke opinion of the day, you can't say what you think. And we see this all the time. So I'll get questions like a kid will come up to me and say, you know, I want to tell my friends that I'm for low taxes or I'm libertarian and they'll say you're racist and I don't know what to do. And and at first I didn't really understand the question, like what's the connection between low taxes and racist? But then I heard the same thing over and over. If you say you're for low taxes, they'll say you're against poor people. And what they mean by saying you're against poor people, they mean you're against black people. And if you're against black people, you're against you're against, uh, you're racist. Now, of course, we can tell them all sorts of things like there's more poor people, poor white people than poor black people. And you can tell them how the welfare state has destroyed the black family, as so many people have talked about, and how good, decent people can't get out of the handout system because it puts them in positions to be in places that they can't live and they'd have to work harder to get out and, and how that then becomes a generational thing. And all of the stuff that Thomas Sowell and Larry Elder and many others have been writing about for years. But what happens is the cry of racism does so much damage that people just are afraid to say what they think. And one of the chapters here, and really the theme throughout the book is, you must stand up to the mob because it cannot take us all out. But what it can do is silence enough of us so that the few of us out there who do stand up to it eventually tucker out. And the reason I say the word tucker is because, Charlie, our friend Tucker Carlson, uh, who's Mm -hmm. become a huge... I would, he's become a good friend of mine, but an ally in all of this. And again, I have big dis- political disagreements with, with Tucker. Um, you know, one of the things that happens is every time Tucker says something that they can misconstrue and media matters can go after him, they launch a campaign to destroy him and they launch a campaign to destroy Fox News. And what they're doing is they're not really trying to destroy Tucker. It's not just about this one man, Tucker Carlson, who, by the way, happens to be making probably more sense than anyone on uh, television He's right now phenomenal. during Corona. He's been the, yeah, the guy's and phenomenal. Off the charts, right? But it's not that they're trying to take him out. What they're trying to do is they're trying to signal to everyone that watches Tucker, see, we can get this guy. We can take all of his advertisers away. He's a millionaire and we can even crush him. So don't you think for a moment that we can't crush you. And that's, that's why, right. by the way, that's why, by the way, although I'm his friend also, I defend him always. I always defend him against the mob because we need more people to stand up. You've done quite a great job of it when they've come after you as well. We've seen this happen to many of our friends. And I think if we can help, that's what this book is. This book is a roadmap to standing up for the mob, understanding what fake news is. The one other little trick that I'll give you in there is that I lay out four types of fake news. One of the types of fake news that there is that people don't really realize, it's not, fake news isn't just a headline that the story is different than the headline or a completely made up story altogether. Another type of fake news is the stories that the media won't touch. So uh, an example of this would be like when Brett Kavanaugh had all of his allegations, it was on the cover of everything for months. It's the number one story everywhere all the time because he's on the right. But when Joe Biden has allegations, which he has right now, what does the New York Times do? They ignore it for weeks. And when they finally ran the story, 
didn't quite make it to page one. It was on page 23 or page 24. And within the article, they spent several paragraphs on allegations about Donald Trump. So I think knowing Mm -hmm. some of the keys to pick up on fake news, knowing how to stand up to the mob, and more importantly than anything else, thinking for yourself. You don't have to agree with everything I've laid out here. You, Charlie, don't agree with everything I've laid out here. And that's okay if you want to live in a free society. So that really is it. You have to. It's impossible not to have disagreement in a free society. If you want conformity, uh, go to North Korea because if you dare disagree, you don't exist. So, uh, yeah. Dave, it's I hear it's beautiful read, this it's time of year. Book. Yeah, it's beautiful this time of year if you're allowed to go outside because they have, they have nationwide quarantine all the time. So for them, nothing's changed, actually. In North Korea, everything's the same. So pick pick it up. Don't burn this book. It's fun. It's well-written. And uh, Dave is also hilarious. If you guys haven't seen his stand-up comedy, you guys got to do it. Uh, Check it out. And so pick up your copy. Let's make it New York Times bestseller. I would love nothing more than the New York Times list have have the thing that says, don't burn this book. That would be awesome. So uh, (laughs) it would just be so funny to see it on there. So Dave, you're a great American. Uh, God bless you and uh, keep it up. Everyone, buy the book. Support Dave. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. If you guys want to join Turning Point USA, as Dave mentioned, we are on campuses across the country. Go to tpusa.com. That's tpusa.com to get involved today fighting for freedom, liberty, and American exceptionalism on campuses across the country. And please type in The Charlie Kirk Show right now to your podcast provider. Make sure you're subscribed. Give us those five-star reviews and leave us a recommendation or a review right there. If you're on Spotify, follow us as well. Email us at freedom at charliekirk.com, freedom at charliekirk.com. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Hey, I'm Autumn Calabrese, and I have a question for you. How do you do life? I might be a superstar trainer, but I'm also a boy mom, sister, daughter, friend, and entrepreneur. You might think my life is all working out and cooking healthy, delicious recipes, but trust me, there is so much more to it, and this is it. This is all of those real moments you talk about with your family and friends. Ever wonder what else life has to offer? Bring your curious appetite, and let's do life together. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and PodcastOne.com. We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. And deep satisfaction out. (sighs) Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary.